the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. And this week we are talking about forgiveness. But before we get to that, let's get our drink orders and rants and or raves. So Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to go back to one of my standby drinks. I'll have a Metropolitan Crankshaft, please. I am raving about a book I just came across called National Dish by Anya von Bremsen. And this is a remarkable book where she looks at six different cuisines from around the world, France, Mexico, Turkey, Japan, and Italy. She looks for what is assumed to be their national dish, so ramen, mole, pizza, and so on. And she goes through the politics of all of this and the economics of all of this. And it really just is a remarkable book about the overlap between economics, society, politics, and cuisine. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have water today, but a water with the liquid <laughs> IV drip, in it, which apparently is a key ingredient in the Borgs that these college kids are drinking these days. I don't know if anybody's heard about Borgs, but oh my God, look it up. Anyway, today I am ranting about loud commercials. <laughs> I get it that this is a get off my lawn kind of a rant, but I don't watch that much television with commercials because obviously most of the things I watch are streaming, but I do have the news on most of the day and that has commercials in it. And I just feel like I'm being shouted at every time the commercials come on. And I don't know if you guys know this, but a few years ago, the FCC passed this act, or I guess Congress passed this act called, ironically, the CALM Act stands for Commercial Advertisement Loudness Mitigation. (laughs) And it was supposed to be the case that television stations couldn't crank up the volume of commercials, but I don't think anybody's enforcing this act because it just seems like they are just deafeningly loud. Yeah, I agree. So Jason, what about you? I'm going to have a dark and stormy, and I'm going to rave about a man named Thomas Bradley. So there's a rave within a rave here. We're reading Alex Press's coverage of the hotel worker strike in L.A. in Jacobin Magazine. And Thomas Bradley is a guy who got a job, one of these task rabbit sort of things, showed up at the job, realized that he was hired because they were on strike, and said, screw that. I'm not going in there. I'm joining the strike. Mm. And what makes this story particularly interesting is that Thomas Bradley, apparently when all this is happening, was currently homeless. But he decided that solidarity was more important than a job for him. And I just think that's a great attitude that I completely reinforce. So Thomas Bradley, if you're out there listening, this strike's for you. Hat tip to you. Yes. (laughs) So forgiveness is what we're talking about. So Rick, what do you want to talk about? I think it's just a fact everyone could acknowledge that we're going to do something wrong at some point in our life. And those wrongs will also sometimes harm people. We can't get away from that. 
that's just because we're beings that have limited power, we have limited knowledge, and we often either lack wisdom or we don't use our wisdom when we ought to. So we can't always do what's right, and we can't always know that what we're doing harms someone, and we can't always see what the right thing is to do right here at this moment. So in times when we do wrong and we harm someone, we might ask for forgiveness, and often we're called upon to forgive someone else. But what does it mean to actually forgive someone? Can I forgive someone if I'll always remember that they did this to me? Uh. Isn't there a danger that if I always remember they've done this, I'm going to retract my forgiveness at any time? And if that danger that I might retract it looms, is it really forgiveness and is real forgiveness possible? But if forgiveness is not possible... Then I wonder, how do we go on living in a world where it seems inevitable that we're going to do something wrong and we're going to harm someone else? Uh What do you actually do when you forgive someone? Well, basically, you're saying I am abandoning my right to revenge, to pay back, by the fact that you have abused me you have hurt me or whatever it is that you have done, you have wronged me, by that you have given me a certain right as it were over you that I could refuse to forgive you. I could say I have the right to retribution. When I forgive, I say I jettison that right and I open the door of opportunity to you to make a new beginning. That is what I do when I forgive you. I think in this topic, forgiveness, more than any other topic, we need to ask the Lee Johnson question. What is it exactly we're talking about? <laughs> that seems broadly insulting. I'm not sure. Really? I thought the other way around. Like you got the philosophical questions been attributed to you. I mean, Deleuze calls that the Plato question, right? The question right. of the essence of a thing. I'll take it that way. <laughs> Well, and I'm not sure we're ever going to settle on a definition, but it might be nice to get some contours. So, Lee, let me go to you. Do you have any idea what the hell forgiveness is? Yes, I do, (laughs) actually. (laughs) I mean, I think I do. I largely follow Derrida on this, and I'm sure we're going to talk about Derrida later in this episode, but the give part of forgiveness is really important. So forgiveness is a gift, and the gift takes the form of something like a cancellation of debt or an erasure of wrong. And so on some level, it has to be separated from things like amnesty or pardon, you know, legal concepts. But on the other hand, it can't, I think, really be separated from its largely religious foundations. There is a long tradition of forgiveness that leads us to understand that forgiveness is something that completely wipes away a debt or a wrong. And I think it's very difficult for us humans to do, but that is what we think we're doing when we forgive. 
I'm mostly familiar with forgiveness from this religious context. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I was raised Catholic, and confession is a big part of Catholicism. And forgiveness is what confession is all about. It's also interesting within the Catholic context that your sins are forgiven, but also you are absolved, right? You're sort of cleaned away of your sins. But what's important, and I think this is where you're going with that, Lee, this is God doing that, right? So God could wipe it away. God could give this gift completely without any conditions, without any limitations. But it seems impossible for us to do that because mm-hmm. that seems like it's an infinite power or a power beyond my ability. I mean, I agree with you that it seems practically impossible for us to do that. But I'll just remind you lapsed Catholic, <laughs> that in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive our debtors as our debts have been right. forgiven, right? So I don't think that this is just something that God does. I mean, it's clearly a part of the core of the Abrahamic traditions that we understand that as we are forgiven, we should forgive. Yeah, I guess when I think of forgiveness, and I did not write a dissertation on it, so (laughs) forgive me. I did. I think, as Rick was saying in the introduction, you know, a lot of it hinges on coming up with a different relationship to the wrong, the thing that needs to be forgiven, the thing that was done, right? And for me, part of it is you either come to some understanding, like maybe it wasn't that big of a deal, maybe you, the person who was forgiving, was just like, overreacting, maybe it wasn't intentional, or maybe there's some way in which you come to a deeper understanding as to why the person did the thing that helps you understand it. Because as you point out, part of the issue with forgiveness is that his attempt to mend a relationship was in some sense has been torn a bit asunder by something. And there is this sense of like, well, you don't want to forgive someone just to have them do the same thing again. So you have to have some kind of understanding, it seems to me, of how what happened happened in the first place. Maybe the person didn't know it was a big deal to you. Or maybe you now understand that the person has their own battles they're struggling with, and what they did that seems so wrong to you had to do with something they were trying to make sense of in their own life. It's odd to talk about these things very generically like this, but I guess for me, the fundamental question about forgiveness is how do we have a new understanding and a new relationship to this thing that has happened? Because if it's not that, then it's just, and this is, I think, one of the real dangers with forgiveness, it's just papering things over to paper things over, right? Because I think there's a social pressure in our society to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. I forgive you. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. I forgive you. Let's move on and make it seem all too easy. Often in my classes, I tell students that I miss the hubris of youth because they have really simple answers to what I think are complicated questions. And the older I get, the more I'm like, the shit is just so complicated. (laughs) Because Jason... In what you were saying, like, I really do get that in order for me to forgive, I want to maybe be assured or know, like, you're not going to do it again, or you know what you did wrong. But now that seems no longer like a gift, as Lee was emphasizing before, because that comes with conditions, right? I'll give this to you if. And that's much more like an economic exchange than something that is freely. And by the way, the prefix here for is not meant in the sense I'm giving you 
beforehand, but in the sense of completely. I'm giving completely and totally. And that seems like it can't come with the condition that you know what you did is wrong, the condition that you're going to try not to do it again, the condition that you didn't do it intentionally. The reason to insist on that is, as I said in the introduction, I'm always worried that if there are these conditions, then the forgiveness is conditional. And if I'm forgiving someone, then I shouldn't take that back. I shouldn't be able to take that back. Yeah, I'm going to borrow one of the tricks from your hat, Rick, and (laughs) ask forgiveness as opposed to what. Mm. One of the things that we really do have to understand in order to understand forgiveness is that it is an alternative to retribution. Right. So obviously, if I'm forgiving someone, I'm not asking for the debt back. I'm not asking for the wrong to be righted. I'm not asking for them to genuflect and apologize and show remorse or whatever. I'm just giving it. In the literature, this is often couched in the language of restorative justice. And I think this gets back to what Jason was saying, is that ultimately what I'm trying to do is find another way to restore or repair and subsequently understand this relationship that was broken. Desmond Tutu, the South African archbishop who famously wrote this book, No Future Without Forgiveness, said that well, there's no future without forgiveness, right? (laughs) That, you know, retribution is not going to fix everything. That if we want to move forward, we have to repair, restore what was broken. And sometimes in, you know, minor matters that can be done with retribution, you know, you stole five bucks from me, give me five bucks. But in matters where there is no equivalence between what's wrong and what could be done to correct the wrong, we need something else if we want to move forward. I would go one step further, and I would say that it might also be the case that retribution is impossible. That is, even if you give me my $5 back, in a sense, I am not made whole by that. I'm made financially whole, but... I still want a little bit more. Like, as Jason said, I want you to be sorry. I want you to, you know, go to your room and think about what you've done. You know, I I want something more than just this sort of equivalence. And so I think one of the dangers of moving too much to a retributive form of justice, like I believe we have in the United States, is that it's in fact impossible. It's really impossible. I mean, I don't entirely agree with that. I think there are instances in which retribution is entirely satisfactory. So if, you know, we get into a car accident, right? And it wasn't like you intentionally ran into my car and, you know, I want you to be sorry for it also. It's just an accident. There's been some harm done to me. And if you pay the cost of it, then it's fine. You know, we've leveled it all out. There is an equivalency there that's satisfactory to everyone. I think that when we're talking about the inadequacy of retribution, where forgiveness really comes in and seems like a promising alternative, we're talking about things where whatever the corresponding equivalent punishment would be can't be determined. Either the wrong is too large or too severe or too irreparable that, you know, no retribution could satisfy it, or it's so nebulous that no retribution can satisfy it. I was just talking with a man who was here to talk to me about replacing my windows, 
And he was talking about getting in an accident. He was in a parking lot and a woman backed into him. She was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, if it's under $500, just let me know and I'll pay for it. But, you know, otherwise we'll have to go through insurance and, you know, I'll take care of it and so on. And one thing he said is, yeah, but the problem is I wish this didn't happen Mm -hmm. because now I'm going to have to take it in, get an estimate, contact you, figure out, are we going to do insurance? Are you going to give me the money? Then I have to go and I have to leave my car there. Maybe there will be a rental car and then I have to go and pick up the rental car. And he said, I just wish it didn't happen. Now, he wasn't holding her in blame. Well, I guess in a way he was, but... An intervention has been made into his life that even paying to fix the car doesn't cover. And I think there is a moment where forgiveness has to happen. Like, okay, you paid it back. This was your fault, but you didn't do it on purpose. And so I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Can I pose that same story from the other side, though? Mm -hmm. So I think that your friend, the guy who was the victim of this accident, like he can demand retribution through the courts and et cetera. And he can calculate all those extra things too. You know, like this was the cost of my rental car. I lost a day of work. This was my whatever pain and suffering that I experienced. You know, all those things can be demanded and the perpetrator can satisfy all of those things. But the perpetrator can't demand forgiveness. Right. And the victim can't demand that the perpetrator ask for forgiveness. Right. We're just talking about a whole different order of things now. When we're talking about things that are largely about, I mean, really about property, I think that for the most part, we've got to kind of stick with the old Aristotelian idea of justice. But when we start talking about things where you can't put a value on the wrong and you can't put a value on whatever would be the correction of the wrong, that's where we move into this other order. Mm -hmm. But we have a tendency, at least in the United States, to try to as much as possible turn all questions into economic questions and therefore we can balance the scales. We have a tendency then to make all questions of justice retributive questions. Mm -hmm. We also have a tendency in the United States to, when we recognize that nothing can be paid here, right, that this is too big for retributive justice, to offer bad faith apologies, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of times, and for a lot of people, especially in America, that We're so accustomed to hearing these bad faith apologies, which sound like demands for forgiveness. Right. It sounds like, look, I've apologized. Now it's your turn. You do what you're supposed to do. Right. And that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what forgiveness is supposed to do, which is to restore a relationship and not restore a Mm -hmm. balance sheet. It's like the character from Ellie McBeal, his nickname was The Fish, and whenever he would harm someone, usually through insults, he would say, oh, did that hurt you? Bygones. You know, and I think this is what these non-apologies do, is they're just saying, oh, we're past it now, and that's something the perpetrator can't do. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when we talk about demands for apologies. I think that demands for apologies are just as empty, just as much bad faith exercises as apologies that demand for forgiveness. I mean, it's useful to think about what are some of the specifics of these bad faith apologies, because we hear them so often. And one of them that comes to mind for me is 
I'm sorry if I offended you. Yeah. You sort of shift <laughs> you shift the language so that you haven't actually done anything wrong, but you're kind of not really taking responsibility for the effect it had on someone else, but there's still this emphasis that it offended you. Yeah, or worse, I'm sorry if you were offended. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You sometimes see this kind of almost therapeutic language around apologies where like one of the things you have to do is take responsibility and have you learned from it? Is it not going to happen again? But everything in our standard apology overlooks those aspects. Right, because right after, I'm sorry if I offended you, the next sentence usually is, I understand that my words could be offensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is right. where, you know, I'm really intrigued by this small moment in Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, where she's talking about action, and I don't want to go into the whole business of what she means by action, and so Thank on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but one takeaway from her discussion is that we do things, and we can't possibly foresee all of the rippling effects that this action is going to have in the world. And some of those rippling effects that we can't foresee might actually harm someone. So if there were no forgiveness, then I would never act because I would always be afraid that I'm going to hurt someone by my actions. And so there is a way in which it's sort of part of the human condition that we need to be forgiven just in order to go on living because of the complexity of the world and the limitations we have both in knowledge and in power. Yeah, but Arendt says there are two things that we human beings have come up with to deal with the uncertainty of action. And she really does think of action as being uncertain because when I act, I act always in relation to others. and I never know how things I say are going to be interpreted and so on, right? Two things we have are forgiveness and making promises. But I feel like her example, I mean, the way she really stresses this indeterminacy of action, she's really thinking about political action, right? right? She's thinking about, like, if I go out and, say, make a speech about the corruption of the Supreme Court, they're all getting paid off billions of dollars, and someone hears my speech and says, you're right, I'm going to go kill myself in Supreme Court justice now to show to get the bastards. Like, that's not what I meant. But that is a consequence of my action, and I may have to apologize. But, but to me, a lot of the things that we apologize for or need forgiveness for, they're not so unpredictable. A lot of times we know the harm that we're doing someone. We just hope they don't find out. <laughs> the unpredictability that Arendt stresses is more of a public kind of action. And in our day-to-day lives, we usually are kind of aware of what bothers and upsets the people around us. We just sometimes do it anyways because it's easier or it serves our interests or something else. I don't know if this is a commentary on us or not, but we seem to have shifted this discussion to the forgiven and to <laughs> apologies. <laughs> I'd like to just kind of roll us back to the act of forgiveness, of forgiving other people. I think that one of the things that we all kind of implicitly understand is that there are times that regardless of what the other person says or does or meant or intended or anything else, that for our own sake, 
we have to forgive something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure like somebody famous actually said this first, but my dad used to say, when you withhold forgiveness, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Mm. You know, something that you're holding on to that's harming you. So it's not so much about the relationship being restored. Maybe it is. Maybe when you forgive them, there's a way for that relationship to be restored and proceed on. But it's also about you being restored, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. we can't mm-hmm. always wait, as retributive justice would lead us to believe, for somebody else to heal our wounds, for somebody else to make us right. Sometimes this is the only thing that we've got. Right. Then this goes back to your recitation of the Lord's Prayer. We're asking for our debts to be forgiven as we forgive the debts of others. So when someone harms me, then I am somehow lessened. Something is taken away from me in that harm. And when I forgive them, I'm restoring them back to where they were. But in doing that, I'm also moving past the loss that I have incurred in this harm you've done to me. Mm -hmm. So it seems that we're circling around the fact that forgiveness is required in situations Perhaps not when just something generally wrong has been done, but when actual harm has been done. Lee, and you're quoting the title of Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. It seems as if somehow this issue of forgiveness is related to moving forward from harm. That doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to me to require that I forget the harm, that I could still remember the harm, but still find a way to move forward. You're the expert on this, Lee, but in in my understanding, this is what a lot of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions are about in South Africa, and I can think of some others. The question here is, we don't know what the repayment would be. It's impossible to find out the equivalents, but we have to go on. Now we have to engage in a whole different kind of attitude, this attitude of restoration. Yeah, that's true. The South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, of course, a commission instituted to help South Africa transition from the apartheid regime to a new multiracial democratic South Africa. I think one thing that a lot of people misunderstand about that commission was that its job was not to trade truth for forgiveness, It traded truth for amnesty, which is an entirely different thing, right? Mm. So the way that it worked was that at that transitional moment, the nation realized that it was like quite literally impossible to imprison everyone who was complicit or who were perpetrators of gross human rights violations under the apartheid regime. There would be no way for the country to move forward. They had to do something else in order to restore the nation. But at the same time, they did not want to simply forget what happened and presumably leave open the possibility of it all repeating itself again. And so the idea was, if you had participated in the apartheid regime, if you had participated in some of these gross human rights violations of the apartheid regime, that you could come to the commission, and if you told the whole truth, you could trade the truth for amnesty. You would not be punished by the law for those things. Also, the perpetrators did this in the presence of victims. The victims were also present at these commission hearings. 
Now, in some of those hearings, some of the victims extended forgiveness Hmm. to the perpetrators. And we're talking about horrible, horrible, horrible acts that were forgiven. And many people saw that as this bright and shining moral moment that we should all emulate. And maybe that's true. Maybe. But it's not in everyone to do that. (laughs) You know, and I don't think it should be in everyone to do that. It somehow got warped in the story about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to believe that what happened was the perpetrators came forward, the victims were present, and the victims forgave the perpetrators, and that's how South Africa moved forward. That's not exactly what it was about. However, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission did recognize in their report that forgiveness was one particularly helpful way to restore the country, to restore these relationships, and to restore the victims so the country could move forward itself. But the interesting moment there is if forgiveness is not extended, then it seems as if the crimes that the perpetrator committed are still being as it were, held against them, okay, not legally, but they're being held against them perhaps socially and the kind of moving forward without tension, a step beyond, is not made impossible. It's at least diminished by the fact that forgiveness is not extended. Yeah, and I think that that was entirely within the right, both in the moral sense and the legal sense, of the victims, the perpetrators were already being extended amnesty. You know, they weren't going to go to jail. They weren't going to be executed. I don't think it's entirely within the victim's rights to say, yeah, but you don't get no punishment for this, right? Like you should live in shame for the rest of your life. And I also think, by the way, that's true of us regular people and our regular lives experiencing regular harms and offenses from other people. I mean, sometimes we can be gracious and be the bigger person and say, I'm going to wipe this debt out with my forgiveness. And other times we can say, you know what? No, (laughs) like you should suffer the shame or the harm of this broken relationship that you broke. I will say, just back to your original point, though, Rick, at no point was forgetting a part of amnesty or forgiveness. As a matter of fact, it was Mm -hmm. the exact opposite. Part of the thing that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa and many others like it in Argentina and Rwanda, former Yugoslavia, many other places like it that had similar commissions, the point was to get the whole truth. And they called this historical truth. There was something absolutely necessary about having a true reckoning with the truth of the past that was essential to restoring any nation that might want to have a future. But that also would entail that the victim's truth be a central part of this story. Which it was, yeah. Because that is the part of the story that might not get told or get told from a different perspective. And so I think it is really important for someone who has been harmed to have that acknowledged, right? I just want you to acknowledge that I have been harmed. And that is a crucial step for the one who suffers the harm. I personally, like I'm talking about in my personal life, could not agree with you more. I mean, I think that there is something about just having someone acknowledge what was done, having someone acknowledge the wrong. Right. That is 
And we're going to get into this in a minute, I know, but like that is a prerequisite for even entertaining the idea of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. At least there has to be some truth about what happened, present, explicit, you know, in order to even entertain the idea of forgiveness. This is, of course, what Derrida calls conditional forgiveness, because the conditions are that in order for me to forgive you, you have to express some remorse. And in order to express some remorse, you have to have acknowledged the truth of what actually happened. But it's not pure forgiveness, which wouldn't have conditions. It isn't pure forgiveness. That's true. Pure forgiveness, at least according to Derrida, would mean I am giving you a gift that is not transactional. Right. That's what a true gift is for Derrida. It's something that you can't even say thank you, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't even like feel good right. for giving it to you. So, you know, a true gift, something that is given as a true pure gift would be something in which, you know, the giver wouldn't even know who the recipient is and the recipient wouldn't even know who the giver is and the giver and the recipient wouldn't even know what the gift is, right? I mean, it would just be a pure giving. Now, Derrida says that's impossible. I think he's right about that. But he also says that when we give or forgive, that we're doing so on the basis of that concept, that concept of pure forgiveness. And we're always going to fall short of it, but it's the impossibility of pure forgiveness that is the conditions for the possibility of actual forgiveness. It seems to me that part of the purity or the extreme form of forgiveness ties into the second notion, which we talked about earlier, and that is the idea of forgiving and forgetting, right? Because to some extent, it seems the ideal of forgiveness is to make it as if this thing never happened. And both parties have forgotten it. I was thinking earlier when you were talking about truth and reconciliation, that it seems to me that one of the things that's coming up around this notion of forgiveness is the way in which we're sometimes talking about interpersonal relationships and we're sometimes talking about political relationships and this term of forgiveness is floating between the two. And it seems to me one place to draw a line of demarcation would be that when it comes to things like you know, South Africa or whatever – it's definitely not forgive and forget. The forgiveness, the amnesty is tied to knowing the truth, right? truth and reconciliation. But I do think it seems to me in the interpersonal thing, there is at least, if maybe not the forgetting, there is an ideal of going back to the situation as if this thing never happened, right? I mean, I think we've all heard stories and know of people who, for example, in a relationship where there's an infidelity, and the inability to restore the trust that existed before it kind of eats away at the relationship, yeah. right? And to some extent, it's an inability to forgive, really, or maybe a jump to forgive too quickly, right? As Rick was saying at the beginning, one of the violations of forgiveness, that I understand, is if you say you forgive someone of something, but you're always holding it in your back pocket, and if you get pissed again, you're like, remember that thing? And you bring it out again, you have not really forgiven. You've just papered over it, but you haven't really forgiven because you're sort of weaponizing the hurt around that. So I think there is this ideal, it seems to me, of forgiving and forgetting. Yeah, it's like burying the hatchet and leaving the handle out of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I mean, I just want to say for my part that I think that forgive and forget makes no sense at all. I think that mm-hmm. if you have forgotten the moment of forgiveness, that you have erased 
what was the origin restorative point of whatever the current relationship is. I think that the phrase forgive and forget should be replaced with forgive and mean it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because you shouldn't forget that part of who you are now is this new relationship, this new restored relationship that was built on this moment in which there was a harm done and you found a way to make it pass. You found a way to restore that and to build something hopefully stronger, hopefully more enduring, etc. But forgive and forget makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. But then it's interesting because we've moved a little bit away from forgiveness in relation to harm. And now we're talking an awful lot about forgiveness in relation to a relationship. Yeah. Or in other words, that the only harm that's been done is not just to me, but the perpetrator has also harmed our relationship and forgiveness can restore the relationship all the while acknowledging, no, you harmed me, but we're going to find a way to have a new relationship. That's a hundred percent correct. Forgiveness only happens at a dead end or an aporia, as Derrida would say, or as Desmond Tutu said, there's no future without forgiveness. So it only happens when the break is so severe that you can't proceed without something other than punitive justice, retributive justice, revenge, etc. You know, something else has to happen. So yeah, I mean, I think that forgiveness is a forward-looking act. It's not a backward-looking act. Right. But then that doesn't that open the question, are there some harms that are just unforgivable? Are there some things that are done for which the relationships cannot possibly be restored? These countries who have established these truth and reconciliation commissions, given all the warnings, Lee, you gave about forgiveness was not really a central part of this and so on, but we're talking about crimes of genocide and some of the most horrific things that human beings have done to one another. Isn't there a moment where we have to say, that is unforgivable. I think we do have to say about some things that they are unforgivable. Nevertheless, and I say this having read the reports of the Argentinian Commission, the former Yugoslavian Commission, the Rwandan Commission, the South African Commission, in which the most horrible things that you could ever imagine were recounted. I think if we just look at the record of human history it appears that there aren't things that are unforgivable. I mean, you know, I'm just saying that we are weird animals that find a way to forgive even those things that almost all of us in the abstract would say were unforgivable. But doesn't that, that to me, suggest there's a condition to even the unconditioned forgiveness, and that is that we need other human beings in order to survive, right? We're driven to forgive the unforgivable because the other possibility would be like total breakdown of a social relationship. Yeah, or the other possibility would be the total breakdown of an individual, right? Like if I've suffered Mm -hmm. a harm that is so devastating that I can't restore relationships with other people and the law can't restore Mm -hmm. it and vengeance can't restore it, then I'm broken forever. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, we could say, well, that's somebody else's fault. Somebody else broke you. But I'm still the one broken. Right. I remember reading a story about Tina Turner, and she was at the rehearsals for like this musical based on her life. And so there's an actor playing Ike. And she went up and she hugged the actor playing Ike at some point. And someone asked her, like, oh, do you like forgive Ike? She said, no, Ike was a monster. Yeah. But I did that for me. Yeah. I did that so I was no longer living under the, you know, it's like she did this like embrace the actor who played Ike because she wanted to not have the monster of dominate her. But even though she thought that Ike was still forgivable, she didn't want to live in a state of having that unforgiven relationship hanging over mm-hmm. her. I think you're bringing up a really good point with that, Jason. And this is something that, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, like I've experienced in my own life in the last year is that often the act of forgiveness does not necessitate that the forgiven ever even know that they were forgiven. Right. <laughs> right. right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that yeah. it is a kind of, I mean, I hate to use this word, but it's a kind of self-care. You know, I mean, it is something mm-hmm. that you have to do to move on. And it doesn't mean that you have to involve the other person at all in it. Mm-hmm. But if it is the case that the other person need not know that they have been forgiven, the danger here is that my forgiveness is only about me and isn't really about the other and isn't really about any relationship at all. It's just really about me, that I need to make myself right. And then my worry there is, like, aren't we putting a burden on the one who suffers the harm rather than on the perpetrator? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it's a burden or not. I mean, I don't think that, you know, when I take cough medicine, when I have a cough, that it's a burden to take the cough medicine. But <laughs> I think this does get back to this struggle between the unconditional forgiveness and the conditional forgiveness. Because, of course, if I were unconditionally giving or forgiving, then I wouldn't be waiting for a thank you from the recipient or, you know, whatever. But nevertheless, I do. The impossibility of pure forgiveness are the conditions for the possibility of actual forgiveness. That's also true of myself, right? I'm still basing this idea of just giving something, just giving something without any expectation. In this case, you know, forgiveness. I'm not, in this case, giving it to someone else. I'm not saying to the other person, you are forgiven. I'm just saying, this is something that I have to do. And the consequence of that is that I'm restored. I feel better about it. Now we're getting back to the whole, like, you know, question of altruism. Like, can you ever really be altruistic? But it is the same, you know, structural phenomena there. Right. What forgiveness does is it acts on the basis of an unconditional concept. And there are consequences to it. You know, there are transactional consequences to it. Sometimes those are between two people. Sometimes they are between a person and him or herself. And the context in which I'm most familiar with that would be forgiving someone who is no longer even alive. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which without that forgiveness that I'm carrying that harm and that harm continues to harm me. And the only way to no longer continue to be harmed is to forgive someone. And clearly when they're dead, they don't know about it. Yeah. You just punched a hole in my drinking poison and waiting for somebody to die theories. (laughs) (laughs) Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. 
We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. And you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. So Lee, you dropped this beautiful phrase earlier, burying the hatchet, but with the handle sticking out of the ground. Which is how all of my hatchets are buried, just (laughs) FYI, guys. (laughs) Behind me, I have a lawn of handles. (laughs) Uh, That's a safety hazard. (laughs) For you. (laughs) So that leads me to think, okay, so you haven't really buried the hatchet if the handle is still sticking out of the ground. In a sense, you've just laid it down. You haven't buried it. You've buried the dangerous part of it. Come on, guys. You've just put it out of sight. You haven't actually (laughs) buried it. So if I'm going to bury the hatchet and really bury the hatchet, then it seems like in burying the hatchet, and I guess that by that we mean forgive and forgiving someone, I have to know exactly what the harm is that I'm forgiving. But secondly, and here's why leaving the handle sticking out is not the appropriate way to bury the hatchet, is because... It also seems like if I forgive you, I will no longer hold that against you. But if you're willing to run out to your yard, Lee, and pick one of those handles and now take the hatchet up against the person, then I would say you haven't forgiven them. Rick, respectfully, I could not disagree with you more. And let me me use your metaphor here or our metaphor here. As I said before, the phrase shouldn't be forgive and forget. It should be forgive and mean it. And the idea there is that when I forgive, we have built a new relationship. Mm -hmm. That relationship is grounded on the fact that its new origin is this new understanding that Mm -hmm. we have of one another. Now, if you lie to me and hurt me and I forgive you for it, I'm going to bury the hatchet and leave the handle sticking out of the ground. I'm not looking back. We're moving forward with our lives, right? We have a new relationship that we're building and we're proceeding and we're growing and we're maturing. If you lie to me again and hurt me again, then I'm like, you are not in the restored relationship. And guess what? (laughs) I'm glad I have that handle sticking out of the ground because, you know, this time I can say this is a toxic relationship. You know, you are abusing this gracious part of me. You're abusing my magnanimity. Is that the word? You know, or whatever. But I don't need to be in this. This is not a relationship that I need to restore. So, yeah, I don't think that leaving the handle out of the ground is a bad thing. Does the hatchet end up in someone's head? That's what I'm picturing here. <laughs> I mean, in this instance, like, poor Richard ends up in his head, but he asked for it. I agree with you that the forgiveness is, like, it's a new beginning. I see two possibilities when you forgive someone. You either understand, like, what the extenuating circumstances were that created them to do this thing, or you have a better sense of who they are as a person. 
And you guys are going to be shocked by this. You know, the line from Spinoza that we, we get more <laughs> angry with things. When we think something is free than necessary, we get more angry, right? When we understand that someone is doing what they had to do. Yeah. Like if I understand that someone lied to me because they're really adverse to conflict and they have whole issues with conflict and they didn't want to bring up this uncomfortable thing and they thought if I, if I didn't know, it would just be better – and I have a better understanding of where they're coming from. Like, I can forgive because I see something of the necessity in what appeared to be like this totally volitional act. They just lied to me for the hell of it. Like, hey, let's just tell this guy a lie. Let's go on. So, like, if I see the necessity in it, I can move forward because I have an understanding. But it's a different understanding of who the person is. I understand now that you have these issues around conflict. I'm really talking about myself because I have issues about conflict. This is why I sometimes like tell little teeny lies because I don't want to bring up the <laughs> conflict. I know it's an issue. But if you understand the necessity underlying the action, you have a different understanding of the person. And sometimes you might come to the understanding this is where you can forgive a person knowing that this person is just not someone you want in their life because they act in such a way with such lack of consideration, consistently like, okay, that's who you are, then I'm not really interested in maintaining a relationship with such a person. Mm -hmm. And here I would say you're forgiving, but you're kind of sort of forgiving yourself because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when there's a huge wrong on an interpersonal level, there's always going to be the question, like, who the hell, like, what kind of person am I that I didn't see the red flags before this happened. Yeah, I think Rick mentioned this in a previous episode. Maybe it was the episode on friendship, but I said once a friendship is broken, it's broken and it can't be repaired. And Rick was like, no, it can be repaired, but it's a different friendship. Right. And I think that that's kind of the same thing. You know, I mean, just using your example, Jason, if somebody lied to me and the lie hurt me, and I understood why, and again, just using your conditions, that it was because this person's averse to conflict. And so they told me, as you say, a little lie, <laughs> but whatever, you know. I think that there are only so many times that that can happen mm -hmm. before I realize that this is an unhealthy relationship. This is a relationship that I can't really be a part of. Mm -hmm. So at the moment of the initial forgiveness, we began building a new relationship, right? And it was different than the one before because now I understand things about you and you understand things about me that we didn't understand before. But at a certain point, I'm going to have to say, yeah, this is, you know, like if this was a friendship, for example, this is broken, this is not working and it's time to put an end to it. And I think that, again, sorry to go back to the hatchets, but the only way that I can make that judgment is if the handle was still sticking out of the ground. So I, unsurprisingly, have not maybe a completely opposed view, but a somewhat opposed view. Because it seems to me that as long as you are establishing a new relationship with the handle sticking out of the ground the original sin, as it were, the original harm, is still forming part of your new relationship. In a sense, it's the sort of kernel around which the new relationship is forming. Then you're always waiting. To use Jason's example, you're waiting for the next little lie, you know, and the next one. And then you're going to grab the very same hatchet. It's not as if once I forgive you, you can do no wrong. 
My point is, once you wrong me again, I need to find a new hatchet. Right. But there is no again without the handle. I mean, I'm sorry to like keep doing this, but like, again, this is why I said it's not forgive and forget. It's forgive and mean it. So when I forgive you, it's not that I'm just waiting for you to do wrong again. The hatchet's there. I didn't wipe my memory. It wasn't a man in black moment, but I am moving genuinely forward in a new restored relationship. But if it keeps happening, I've got to stop it. I mean, you know, for both of us, I've got to stop it. It can't keep happening unless the hatchet is still out of the ground. And I can be like, yeah, this happened before. Yeah. And so I think this is a good illustration of the impossibility of pure forgiveness. Exactly. Which would be a state in which I could never say this keeps happening. Yeah, it's the men in black. Right. Or, you know, to have some sort of divine power. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Well, I should say, since we're talking about forgiveness, that if you have not sponsored us on Patreon, we forgive you. (laughs) But we're burying the hatchet. But we do ask that you make us whole, as they say. (laughs) And the best way to do that is to become a sponsor and we will truly bury that hatchet no handle sticking up. You can find us at patreon.com slash sessions. So do we have any final words on forgiveness? Yeah, I do. I mean, I want to say that for all my qualifications on forgiveness in this episode, I genuinely do believe that the act of forgiveness is one of the most miraculous mm. and impossible to understand capabilities of human beings. I do not think that we would survive without it. And whether or not you're religious, it is something that you need to spend time in your life trying to understand. I'll also say, as I've said many times in this episode already, the phrase should not be forgive and forget. (laughs) First of all, you don't forget. There's no human being that exists in any kind of community without a memory. It should be forgive and mean it. That reminds me of one of my favorite passages from the Mahabharata, where without going into detail, there's a riddle that has to be answered. And the riddle is, what is the greatest joy of life? And the answer is that each day death surrounds us, and yet we live each day as if we were immortal. And when you said that, Lee, there's something about forgiveness that is something like borrowing the powers of the gods. Mm. You know, that's something that you meant by miraculous. It's a moment of stepping out of our finitude, and yet we're still limited, right? And so that's why it's always going to be conditional. But I think the pure forgiveness 
has to be there both as the condition for the possibility of conditional forgiveness, but also as uh, pushing our conditional forgiveness forward to have fewer conditions and maybe push you, Lee, forward so that you'll completely bury the hatchet. (laughs) No chance. I'm actually going out now to water my lawn of hatchets, (laughs) hatchet handles. (laughs) What about you, Jason? Yeah, I guess the thing I'm left with is thinking about how forgiveness or true forgiveness is kind of like a an ideal to aspire to, and it's an ideal that's sort of beset on both sides. One side is the too quickly asked for and the too quickly granted mm-hmm. forgiveness that isn't really meant to use my metaphor of the day, papered over the, the hatchet mark. Or, I don't know. I can tie them together somehow. <laughs> but anyway, and the, on the other side, I think the danger is of not forgiving and not making it possible to move forward in living under the weight of a grudge. Because I do think that when we're talking about relationships between people, to not forgive the person, it still marks us. Mm. Even if we don't want to have a relationship with a person, something has been broken probably around issues of trust and our ability to relate to people. The harm lingers even when we've separated the person out of our life. Well, with that, our bartender has made, well, we're past last call. We've already drunk our last drinks. And she will not forgive us. (laughs) She will not (laughs) forgive us for staying a minute past closing. So I'm going to call a cab and I will catch you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.